Hello and good evening to everybody. Here we are again in that weird interregnal period between Christmas and New Year. The bells have very much jingled. NORAD has tracked Santa safely back to his North Pole base of operations and everyone has finally stopped fat shaming that poor old goose. The kids aren't quite back at school, no one's entirely sure if they should be going into the office and everyone has eaten too much cheese. And it's at this time of year when we like to look back and reflect on the year that has just passed. 2022 has been an interesting year in Geek, and I don't necessarily mean that in an entirely positive way. What I'm going to try and do is look back over some of the highs and lows of this year in Geek. Now, I'm going to attempt to try and maintain some kind of chronological order here, and I'm going to try and keep things organised by theme. You already know me well enough to know that I'm going to fail on both those counts. So please forgive me for leaping around the timeline like a scalded grasshopper. And let's start with the year in space. Because that has been mostly positive. An awful lot of good stuff has gone on in space this year. NASA punched an asteroid and went around the moon. SpaceX continued to demonstrate its genuinely impressive ability to get humans not just into space, but docked with the International Space Station, something that Americans haven't been able to do by themselves for some time. And the Chinese, if we are to believe anything we are told about what is happening with the Chinese space program, have managed to start building their very own space station, which, again, hugely impressive. And we'll touch on several of those things. The bad things that have happened in space aren't really to do with space. Various points in any review of 2022, we are going to have to address the elephant in the room that is President Putin's aggressive invasion of Ukraine. It matters here for a couple of reasons. And the, the first thing I'm going to pick up on is something that should have happened this year. And now not only will not happen this year, may not ever happen at all. And, and that's something that I'm genuinely very disappointed about. It's a joke that Mars is a planet populated entirely by robots. Not just robots, though. Rovers. The very first proof of concept rover, the Sojourner, back in the 90s, to two of the most successful space probes of all time, the rover's spirit and opportunity, to the incredibly successful Mars Curiosity rover, which is still up there now doing some work, and, of course, its little Ingenuity helicopter, which was sent there as a proof of concept, but is already doing incredible work, enabling Curiosity to sample much more area than he was ever going to do from the ground. All of those rovers have one big thing in common. They're all American. They were going to be joined by the Rosalind Franklin rover, which was a joint project between the European Space Agency and Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. This is a rover that should have launched in, I think, 2018. There were some scheduling issues which pushed it back into 2020. And then, of course, 2020 happened, which pushed it back even further. And it was supposed to go this year, probably at some point in the late summer of 2022. Well, as relations between the various member states of the European Space Agency and the Russian Federation got 
fractious? Is that a word we should use? Let's go with fractious. Over 2022, it was became really obvious there was going to be no cooperation between Roscosmos and ESA, which means that the Rosalind Franklin rover is not going to fly anytime soon. And honestly, the way these things tend to work out, by the time any future mission could be rejigged to include the Rosalind Franklin rover, it's a very good chance it'll be obsolete. And, you know, these are problems that have knock-on effects because the Rosalind Franklin rover, one of the things it was supposed to be doing was picking up samples that Curiosity is leaving behind. So now NASA are going to have to think of something other way of getting those samples back. And it's it's a nuisance. And it would be better if this were not happening. Uh, another knock-on effect that the Russian aggression in the Ukraine has had on space is... Um, Turns out the Russians made an awful lot of rocket engines. And since they now won't sell those rocket engines to ESA or NASA or JAXA or any of the other Western space agencies, well, we're going to have a bit of a rocket engine shortage in the not too distant future. And that is, again, unfortunate. It's not insurmountable and it doesn't have to be a major problem, but it is one further example as to why it really does pay sometimes to keep things in-house. Okay, so we'll come back to space a little bit later on with some of the more positive news stories from 2022. But what we're going to do is we're going to intersperse a look back over the the news and stuff from, from the year by highlighting some of the comics and comic series that we have loved this year. Because we don't talk enough about comics on this show, I don't think. So... First up, we have Poison Ivy. This was a limited series which should actually be over already, but it was so good, it got extended. Which is something that doesn't happen nearly as often these days as it used to, and it really is a sign that people have got behind a book. So what is Poison Ivy? Well, I'm starting off with one of the big two. This is from DC, and it features the character Poison Ivy, who has been for a very long time a Batman villain. Real name, Pamela Isley. And she was a botanist, and a good one, until an accident, and it depends which origin story you read. There is a kind of recap of her origin story in this miniseries. But as a result of, let's just say, shenanigans, she develops the power not only to control plants, but to secrete toxins which can control or kill people. Um, you know, if she kisses you, she can make you do what she wants. Basically, or she can kill you, if she likes. As you might expect, such a character has always been portrayed until very recently as something of a femme fatale. You may remember her being played by Uber Thurman in the not-exactly-good Batman and Robin movie from the 90s. In recent years, though, the character has been developed, and she is now, canonically, in a romantic relationship with a certain Ms. Harleen Quinzel, or Harley Quinn. A development which I particularly like. Actually, they make a really good couple. They're very different as characters, but they have many things that make them compatible, and it, it works. Just trust me, the, the Harley Quinn, Pamela Isley thing, it really, really works. However, Harley Quinn is not in this miniseries. This miniseries, uh, which is originally, I think, supposed to be seven issues, but we're into issue eight now because they've started a new story arc, written by the writer G. Willow Wilson, who was primarily responsible, I would argue, for the creation of Ms. Marvel over at Marvel, uh, with art mostly by uh, 
Matteo uh, Takara. Now, there are some guest artists who do various little bits, and the covers, I think, are mostly by Jessica Fong. But, you know, the interior art is mostly um, Takara. Now, something you need to know has happened before you start reading this. You don't need to have read anything before this, but you need to know that there was a, a, a story in Batman which involved the Scarecrow poisoning Gotham with chemicals. It, it's not like that hasn't happened before. But as a result of all of this and her action during this to save Gotham, because Poison Ivy is not just a two-dimensional villain anymore, um, she finds herself without her powers and essentially dying. And Ivy has always been an eco I was going to say eco-warrior. I think eco-terrorist, actually, that's not a term I like in real life, but I think it probably applies to Ivy. Uh, she's more than happy to kill people to save plants. And, you know, she therefore impacts on the world often like a terrorist. She does have a very high body count for someone who is now being rehabilitated as a bit of a central, not a hero perhaps, but a bit of a central character. And she decides that before she dies... She's going to take the human race with her, basically. And she sets out to do this by distributing fungal spores uh, for a fungus that will destroy any mammalian life that it touches, leaving the earth in the grip of plants. And, you know, the motive behind this is, has been a central theme in Ivy's backstory for quite a long time. And this story, Willow Wilson, is, is very clear that Ivy is motivated here by a desire to protect the natural environment from human destruction. Um, anthropogenic climate change is right at the front of this story. Uh, and what Wilson is doing here is exploring the ju juxtaposition between the nobility of Ivy's intentions you know, she wants to save the world. She wants to save the ecosystem. She's not human focused. She wants to fail to, to save the ecosystem that's being failed by humans. Um, but, you know, is she justified in going so far? Bearing in mind, she is human herself, mostly. So she's destroying herself and sacrificing herself and her species to save the ecosystem. Is that a noble thing? Is that a villainous thing? Is that a question that's too big to answer? All of that is bounced around and explored, mostly, actually, by Ivy herself. Wilson herself, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia here just to uh, give them their appropriate credit. Uh, Wilson described Poison Ivy as a love story from the perspective of a villain. And I liked that, um, because although Harley does not appear, Ivy is constantly writing letters to Harley, um, which are explaining the plot, essentially. And we're not clear as to whether Harley ever gets these letters, but if I was going to be all English literature teacher about it, I would say that this was almost, almost, an epistolary novel. It's a novel told in letters. It's said to be an epistolary graphic novel, obviously. There's a lot of body horror going on. Uh, the, the, the transformations of the people infected by the fungus are pretty gruesome. Uh, but it's, it's nice, none of it's gratuitous. It's nicely done. There is a strong core 
of, of narrative thread going through everything. And it, it was pretty well received. I mean, obviously it was pretty well received because it, it was extended. It was only supposed to be one story arc. And we're into the second arc now with Willow Wilson exploring slightly different ways, perhaps, of saving the planet. Uh, I, given that it's now, I don't think it's officially an ongoing, but given that it's gone past the end of the Ivy Destroys the World with Fungus story, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that, for reasons I shan't explain, because that would be a spoiler, uh, Ivy does not, in fact, destroy humanity uh, and moves on into the second story arc to explore other things. She hasn't made it back to, to Harley yet. I think if I got a problem with this, is, is that I would have liked to have seen some of Harley Quinn's interaction with this. How does Harley feel about what Ivy is doing? That, of course, may be explored in future storylines, although DC seem to be working a little bit hard to keep Ivy and, and, and Harley separate in the core books. It's a shame, because I really like that relationship, but hey, there you go. Overall, though, I would say that this was pretty close to perfect as far as graphic narrative goes. It's a strong story. It's a story with something to say. The characters are interesting. Nobody is a black-and-white cookie-cutter villain. Nobody's a black-and-white cookie-cutter hero. Uh, it, it's just a powerful piece of writing with incredibly strong, incredibly strong art. As I said, the art was mostly uh, by Matteo Takara, uh, with colours from Arif Prianto and letters from Hassan Otsmane Ella. I always get his name wrong. I, I'm going to call you Hassan, sir, and I apologise for not having found out how to pronounce your last name. I don't think this has been collected yet, although it will be collected shortly if it isn't, isn't out already, and I highly recommend it. It is a stunning piece of work. But now we're going to move on and have a look at some of the geeky movies that came out in 2022. And yes, I know, I did warn you, this is going to be a little bit scattershot. And of course, speaking of scattershot, we're going to start with Top Gun Maverick. Some of you might be surprised to see this particular movie on my particular geeky list, to which I say, hey, it's my list. And I have been looking forward to a Top Gun sequel since Top Gun came out. As I keep telling anyone who will listen, you can be geeky about anything. Being a geek is simply about unapologetically being enthusiastic about the things you love. And I have to tell you, folks, I love fast jets. So I was pretty much first in the queue to see Top Gun when it hit the cinemas in whatever year it was, 86? 86, probably. I was 14 years old, which made me too young to go and see it. It was a 15. And it was the first time I ever lied about my age to get something that I wanted. It's pretty near the last as well. In fact, I think it probably was the last. Anyway, if you're one of the people who does not like Top Gun because you think it's militaristic, you think it glorifies uh, the US military industrial complex, uh, and you think, moreover, that it is in fact not very good and doesn't really have anything approaching a coherent plot, I wouldn't disagree with you on any particular point. I think you have to take movies like this with... At the same time, you have to take them with a pinch of salt and at face value. Um, the story of Top Gun, the original Top Gun, is ridiculous. It's simply ridiculous. 
nothing portrayed in that movie would happen the way it happens in that movie. It simply would not. I don't care. I didn't watch Top Gun for the plot, nor did I watch it critically thinking about the way this was manipulating people to join the military. I watched it for the flying sequences, and the flying sequences in Top Gun are superb. They really are. There'd been nothing like it before, I don't think, and rarely matched since, if we're honest. And you've got to remember, this is the mid-ish 80s, when Tom Cruise wasn't quite Tom Cruise yet. It's also a film. Um, you can find uh, Tim Robbins in this movie, uh, Val Kilmer, obviously, as Iceman. It actually does boast an extremely interesting cast. But that's not the movie I'm reviewing. I am going to talk you over Top Gun Maverick. And because of that, because it is still a relatively recent movie, and it's not fr streaming for free anywhere yet, which means a lot of you might not have seen it, um, I am just going to sound the spoiler horn. <laughs> Spoilers! You have been warned. So, we start with Captain Maverick Mitchell. Stalled disobeying orders and conducting a flight test on an experimental, ultra-fast, top-secret jet. Uh, the Admiral is coming to shut down the programme and he kind of is like, well, we, we, we've got to try. We were supposed to go for Mach 9 today. If the ultimate goal is Mach 10 and that'll save the project, I've got to get in the air and do it before the Admiral can come and shut us down, kind of thing. The kind of, of concern for the chain of command that Pete Mitchell showed in the original Top Gun and which would, in the real world, have had him dishonourably discharged some time ago. But anyway, he does it. He gets the plane in the air, takes it to Mach 10, then pushes a bit further and something goes wrong. He pushes the plane beyond its, its envelope and he has to eject. And then we get a scene in a diner somewhere in the Midwest. Maverick in his high altitude flight suit with his helmet under his arm kind of walks in. He's got his parachute under his arm as well, I think, and asks for a glass of water and asks where he is. And a little kid looks up from the table next to him and goes, Earth? Which I thought was cute, and it's a nice little nod to something that allegedly happened to Chuck Yeager back in the days when he was the first man to break the sand barrier. So it's a nice little touch to my little plain geeky heart there. I don't think the Yeager story is true, incidentally, but it's a story that is told. And this is a nice way of reintroducing the character of Maverick to the audience. We've not seen him for over 30 years. So, you know, it, it's nice to just be reminded of that this is the guy who requests permission to buzz the tower and does it anyway. It's this guy. And, you know, it's commented on by several characters that after his the length of time he has been in the Navy, you know, he, he should be an admiral by now, and he's still a captain. What's that about? And he's kind of like, well, I am where I should be, kind of thing. And we follow him back to base, where he's met by his commanding officer, who essentially says, I was in the middle of writing out your discharge papers when I got the call. You've been redeployed. And he's been redeployed to Miramar, the top gun flying school, which, of course, was featured in the first movie. And so he gets there and he is told, we have a mission. It's very important. 
We have a target that's going to be very difficult to hit. It's got to be done at low level. And it's got to be ready the next three weeks. We need four jets crewed by six air personnel. What do you reckon? And at first, he's like, well, I, I haven't flown combat for a long time. I I don't think I could lead a mission like that. And I don't know who I trust to fly it with me. And at this point, he's corrected by the Admiral in charge of Miramar. He says, no, 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 you're not flying it. You're teaching it. And he's less thrilled by that. He points out that, yes, he was a Top Gun instructor. That is the deployment he's rewarded with at the end of the first movie. But he points out he lasted less than two months. And that was over 30 years ago. So he's not thrilled. But it's that or become a civilian. And he doesn't want to be a civilian. So he takes the assignment and he sees the squad of 12 air personnel he will be teaching. Six of those 12 will be selected for the mission. And he is immediately appalled to see that one of those 12 is a pilot called Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, the son of Goose, who was, of course, the weapons officer who flew in the F-14 Tomcat that Tom Cruise flew in the original movie, and, of course, who was killed in an accident that may or may not have been caused by Cruise's recklessness. And, of course, by Cruise, I mean Maverick. They're the same person, let's be honest. We then follow the training, and he sets up uh, a, a training course designed to perfectly mimic the, the mission they're about to undertake. And they can't fly it. None of them can fly it. And in the end, Maverick is canned, or they're about to can Maverick from the mission and redesign the mission parameters to make it easier. And Maverick says, you can't do that. If they fly it like that, they will all die. And the brass say, well, they can't fly it any other way. So, and we have to do this at all costs. So, you know, you've just shown them that they can't fly it the way you want them to fly it. They can't do it. We've got to do it some other way. So just as they're about to start the briefing in which they inform the students that the mission is going to be changed, Maverick starts to fly the run and everyone's watching it on telemetry. And of course he flies it perfectly. He makes the hit exactly as he should. All good. Now, we get lots of banter and interpersonal relationships in all of this, mirroring quite a lot, actually, the, the character development in the first film. The difference here is that the character development actually feels real. It's plausible. We also have a developing relationship between Maverick and an old flame, not Charlie, played by Kelly McGuinness from the original movie, uh, but Penny, who is played by Jennifer Connelly and not in the first movie, as far as I recall. Uh, I suspect they would have got Kelly McGillis in if she was up for it, but Kelly McGillis has, well, very definitely aged 30 years since the last movie. She is an entirely different body type now, and not the kind of actor they get in to play the female lead in movies like this. Something that I actually deplore, but that's the way things are. So there's that. So we get a burgeoning relationship between Penny, who is kind of an old flame. There's also Penny's 14-year-old daughter, who is not Everett's daughter. I think that's made very clear. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's some nice little bantery bits between them two. That phase of the movie wraps up, and we find ourselves on an aircraft carrier in an ocean somewhere. The target country is never specified, which I think is hilarious. 
Maverick's been named lead pilot, because of course he has. He has to pick the rest of the pilots that go with him. Of course he picks Rooster, the son of his dead friend. Of course he does that. We move to the next phase of the movie, which is the attack itself. Now, this is brilliantly shot. The, the, the flight sequences here are just astounding. It, it's all practical, as far as I can see. There didn't appear to be any CGI involved particularly here. I suppose, suspect there was the kind of practical smoke and mirrors that display pilots use when they make themselves look spectacular, and I don't care. It looks spectacular. And of course, the mission is successful. And then we move to the next phase of the movie. Because Maverick, in ensuring that the mission is successful, is shot down and ejects into the absolutely not Russian, no, certainly not Russian, very definitely not Russian or Iranian, not that either, snowscape. The rest of the planes bug out back to the safety of the open ocean and their aircraft carrier base. But Rooster will not leave a man behind. And so Rooster, directly disobeying orders, goes back to see if he can spot where Maverick is and guide rescue to him. In doing so, he saves Maverick from certain death, as Maverick is being targeted by a hind helicopter gunship, which is a mark that is only really flown by Eastern European nations that were once part of the Russian USSR kind of thing. Not that they're saying that this rogue nation is Russia at all. They're definitely not saying that. But Rooster destroys that, that gunship and Maverick is saved. Unfortunately, in doing so, Rooster himself is also shot down, much to the chagrin of Cruz. Because Cruz, Maverick, Maverick was clearly prepared to sacrifice himself on this mission. You know, he'd said his goodbyes to everybody and, you know, told everybody it'd been an honour serving with them in the way that characters in movies like this do when they think they're going to die. Maverick said from the very beginning that if they flew that mission, somebody wasn't coming back. He was just determined to make sure that it wasn't any of the young pilots. But now he's got to go and rescue his best friend's son. And so he does. Now, he makes his way over to where Rooster has parachuted in. And after what I think we'll describe as a frank exchange of views, we move to the penultimate section of the movie, which is the escape. Now, it's been set up that a cruise missile strike on the nearest airfield had destroyed the runway pretty much for enemy jets. So enemy jets couldn't take off to intercept the attack mission. It's also been established that there are two fifth-generation fighters in the air already, which are still presumably actively hunting for the planes that have done the mission. Maverick and Rooster make their way to this airfield, where they find an old F-14 Tomcat, the plane that was the star, of course, of the original movie. I don't think they're suggesting it's the same plane. It's the same type of plane. Here we have a glorious example of Chekhov's gun in action. Chekhov's gun is the writing trope that, you know, if you see a gun in the first act, it must be fired in the third. Well, when they were showing Maverick the intelligence reports on the, this particular airfield, they said they've got 
fifth generation fighters based here but they've all even got some old f-14 tomcats and there's a joke about how it's not just the u.s navy that hangs on to old relics as the admiral looks meaningly at tom cruise so in a scene that i can assure you is almost completely impossible the two steal the f-14 and start to make their way back to the ship and of course this ancient plane is pursued by two fifth-generation fighter jets, which are infinitely more manoeuvrable, significantly faster, and absolutely better armed than any Tomcat would ever be. And of course, because part of the theme of the movie has been is the pilot, not the plane, of course Maverick out-dogfights them. And they're heading for safety when, all of a sudden, a third fighter coming right at them. They're out of missiles, they're out of guns, there's nothing they can do. It's certain death, and all Maverick can do is apologise to Goose for getting his son killed. Except, of course, that's the point where Lieutenant Reuben Payback Fitch, who's been kind of the Iceman character in this movie, uh, very much the opposition to Rooster, where the Iceman was the opposition to Maverick in the first film. He appears out of the sun, takes out the final fifth generation fighter, and gives them a little bit of a self-serving speech. You know, like, this is your saviour speaking, please return your trays to the upright position, that kind of thing. Uh, and then obviously they have to land this decrepit F-14 on the deck. It doesn't have hooks, it doesn't have the brakes. They have to put a net up to stop it, which is the... Generally speaking, no, no naval aviator wants to land into a net. It's the ultimate mark of shame. Except, of course, when you've done something like this. Then we get the scene on the deck of the ship where everyone's back home safe. Nobody's died. No one's been left behind. Everybody's happy and everybody reconciles. It's an exact mirror of the same scene, effectively, from the first movie where Maverick and Goose land and they climb out of the plane and everyone's cheering an Iceman who's been their adversary all the way through the movie comes and shakes Tom Cruise's hand and says, you can be my wingman anytime. And Maverick says to him, no, you can be mine. And you get that same moment but between Rooster and Payback. And also a little bit of reconciliation between Maverick and Rooster. There's been some sort of family drama going on between these two. It's fairly clear that after the death of Goose, Maverick took an interest in Goose's son and like tried to be a father figure to him and there are some issues surrounding that that Rooster needed to work out. They're worked out at this point. And then in just a little coda we see Rooster and Maverick clearly reconciled working on Maverick's privately owned P-51 Mustang and Penny turns up and the last thing we see is Maverick taking Penny on a ride in his plane because he's not in the Navy anymore. That was his last mission. But he's still flying. We see he's still flying. And perhaps finally, Captain Mitchell has moved on to a new phase in his life. Nice. It's a really solid plot. It's not a complicated plot, but it's a solid plot. And I loved it because I'm a sentimental idiot. There's also some nice touches. We, we have the, they give an answer to the reason that Captain Mitchell has not been kicked out of the Navy years ago. He's been protected throughout his career by Admiral Kazansky, otherwise known as Iceman. And we do get 
quite a moving cameo of Val Kilmer in that role. Uh, if you're familiar with what's happened to Val Kilmer, he's had some kind of throat cancer and he can, well, actually, as I think as of this point, he can't speak at all. At the time of filming, he could clearly speak a little bit. There's a scene where Maverick is, he gets a phone call to say, look, it's come back. He hasn't got long. And so Maverick goes to see Iceman and they have a conversation which Maverick thinks is going to be quite emotional. And Iceman is communicating by mostly by typing on the keyboard. He says, no, I want to talk about work because Iceman wants to make sure that this mission succeeds. And it was Iceman who pulled the strings to get Mitchell onto this mission. It's really nicely done. The interaction is great. It's clear there is there is respect between Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. It's nice to see Val Kilmer get this recognition, this this sponsor, if you like. So I liked that too. In fact, there was nothing I didn't like about this movie. Is it a great movie? No. Is it surprising me that it's not appearing on like the lists of best movies of 2022 in RT publications like The Guardian? No. Is it the movie I've enjoyed the most in 2022? Do you know, I have a horrible feeling it might be. And if you want a movie that's just entertaining, that you don't want to have to think too hard about, this is a good one. It really is. Anyway, enough of that. Time to move on and look at something else that's happened in the past year. I really want to talk about some of the great TV that's happened this year, but I'm going to do that by segueing back into comics just for a second, because... I really do want to talk about what I think has been one of the most fun comics to hit the racks in 2022, and that is She-Hulk. Now, you may only know She-Hulk from the TV show. You may not even know her from that. Regular listeners will know that I have been a fan of Shulky for some considerable time. I mean, my, my relationship with Shulky goes back into the 1980s, when She-Hulk was one of the very few American comics that could be reliably and regularly obtained from the newsagents next door to the sports shop where I used to have a Saturday job. And it was one of those those really useful happenstances that kind of have a much bigger effect on the course you take in the future than you might expect. Because had I been able to, I would have been reading a great deal more Spider-Man, a great deal more Avengers, and a great deal more Silver Surfer. But I couldn't get them. What I could get was this weird comic about a giant green lawyer woman. And I, I may have said before, I never really liked the Hulk. Not in the comics. I, I wanted the Hulk that I knew from the TV version that I'd watched as a kid. And had I had more choice, I absolutely would not have picked up She-Hulk at that point. But I didn't have a choice, and so I did. And as a result, I was exposed to a type of comic that I wouldn't otherwise have come across. A different way of doing comics. At a time when the Batman I was reading was beginning to, to lean in to sort of grim and gritty, this was a comic that absolutely did not take itself seriously and was not afraid to muck about. And I, I didn't really appreciate that at the time, but looking back, it meant that I was much more open to other things, other non-superhero stuff, as I aged and matured and became the creaking old wreck that I am now. I'm always glad to see an actual She-Hulk comic on the stand. Now, 
I don't kid myself, she's a B-list character, really. And you do mostly see her in supporting roles in team books. She's been in the Avengers on and off for quite a long time, for example. And I've not always been a fan of what they've done with Shulky in the team books. What I really want to see is really kind of what the TV show gave us, which is Jen doing her thing as a lawyer, as a good, effective, competent lawyer, trying to keep some kind of control of her personal life. And then very occasionally, because she can't get out of it, having to do a bit of superheroics. And that's what the 2022 run of the She-Hulk comic has given us. Writer Rainbow Rowell, who is relatively new to writing for the MCU, has in many ways taken Shulky back to her roots. When we last saw Jen, she was in the Avengers and for a good long time had been the savage She-Hulk, meaning that much like her cousin, she lost a large part of her intelligence when she hulked out, which I never liked. I never liked that. We've got Bruce for that. Much as I hate to bring down the wrath of the uneffable rage nerds onto my head by bringing up a point that was fairly heavy-handedly made in the TV version, I have to say. The fact that Jen keeps her sense when she gets angry is kind of a metaphor for the difference between men and women. Now, Bruce is a bloke, and when he gets enraged, he goes all testosterone-fueled and smashes things. Which, you know, speaking as bloke, I have to say, a bit of a blokey thing, that. Whereas Jen, it's not that she doesn't get angry, it's that she channels her anger differently and she keeps her sanity when she does that, which is more of a feminine trait. And yes, I know I am speaking extraordinarily broadly. Your mileage may vary. And of course, differences always exist. But yeah, speaking generally, I think that is a fair point. And I think that's a point that She-Hulk and Hulk have been making for a very long time. This is not a new observation. I haven't come up with anything clever here. So Jen losing her sense when she hooked out, I, I really spoiled the character for me. And I was very pleased when at the end of her run as one of the Avengers, they sorted that out. So now she's back in New York. But of course, having been the savage She-Hulk for a good long time, she's got a life to put back together. She doesn't have anywhere to live. She doesn't have a job. So she's got all that to sort out. And that's what quite a lot of this book is. She has to find an apartment. Fortunately, she has very good friends, one of whom is Janet Van Dyne, who is one of the two wasps currently in the Marvel Comics universe. But Van Dyne is also a very rich fashion designer and model, former model, I think now. And she owns quite a bit of property in New York. So she's perfectly happy for Jen to stay in one of her apartments. So that's somewhere to live sorted out. Then there's the question of a job. Well, she is a lawyer, but she is a lawyer with a reputation for being big and green and smashing things, which may not always go over that well. But she does land a job at a firm of lawyers run by a woman that she has a bit of a past with, not necessarily a positive one. And there's only one rule. Absolutely no superhero clients. A rule which Jennifer is going to find difficult. Should we say difficult? I think difficult to adhere to. But at least it's a job. Her life is coming back together. But she's Jennifer Walters. 
She is the She-Hulk. That is always going to be a complication. And the complication here arrives in the form of Jack of Hearts, one of the most dangerous characters in the Marvel Universe, because he is a contained nuclear explosion, and he is incredibly radioactive. Now, fortunately, Jen is a Hulk. Radio Radioactivity is kind of their thing. But she does have to try and work out what this guy's intentions are. What does he want to do? Why is he back on Earth? He's not been on Earth for a while now. And most importantly, how dangerous is he? But hey, at least she's not alone anymore. And that's a relationship, the, the, the Jennifer Jack of Hearts relationship, is something that has been interesting to watch grow in a very organic, very natural kind of way. And it, it's something that Rainbow Road does very well. She writes characters extremely well. Now, the book has been criticised for being a little bit too soapy, a little bit Sex in the City, which is a show I never enjoyed. But I don't actually think those are valid criticisms. I mean, you may not like a book like this for those reasons. You may find it soapier than you want your comics to be. You may find it a little bit too focused on relationships and stuff like that. But, you know, fine. If that is your preference, then, yeah, She-Hook is not for you. But I really enjoy the social commentary, uh, the way the characters are well-rounded, the way that it's character that drives the story rather than plot. I'm all for a plot-driven storyline too, but sometimes I like to sit back and just spend some time with the characters I like, and this comic does that for me very nicely. I've always liked She-Hulk. Uh, now I get to sit down and have a cocktail with her. I like that. And of course, it's not just the writing that is great. Every copy of She-Hulk so far in this run has come wrapped in a beautiful cover by Jen Bartel, who is one of my favourite cover artists, and certainly one of my favourite people to draw female superheroes, because she draws them in a way that is attractive, but not self-consciously sexy. And I like that. There's too much sexualization of characters on covers, I think, of men and women before people get mad at me for being sexist. And I, th I just think Bartel nails drawing women. I think she's just brilliant at it. The interior art is also excellent, uh, featuring uh, work by yeah, Roj Antonio, Luca Maresca, and Takashimi Miyazawa. It, it's just, again, dynamic. It flows. The action sequences feel action-y. You see the movement, if that makes sense. It is just superbly, superbly done. We're, I think, nine issues in now. And this is, I think, as I said, one of my favourite ongoings of 2022. Long, long may this continue. It's not a particular high seller, which I think is perhaps to do with the woeful lack of marketing that Marvel have done for this as much as anything else. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you're not on board already, I really do suggest you give it a try. And I suppose here would be a good time to go back and look at the She-Hulk series on Disney+. Plus. I'm not really going to do that because it's only a few weeks since we wrapped up talking about She-Hulk every single week. So most of you, I'm sure, can remember what I thought about it. If you can't, 
I will just drop in here the spoiler-free review of the final episode of the She-Hulk series, She-Hulk Attorney at Law, which I think actually also eloquently speaks for my general attitude to the whole of the show. <laughs> oh, wow! Come on! That was sublime! Come on! I mean, the thing when she did the thing with the thing and the, the climbing down the thing. <laughs> and Kevin! <laughs> oh, come on! Oh, that was so, so good! <laughs> Honestly, I did not think, I did not think they would ever dare to be that meta in the MCU. And, oh, 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 come on, they absolutely stuck at the landing. I was a little bit worried halfway through, but my word, oh, 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 oh excuse me. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I think that just about sums it up. Okay, so what we haven't talked about yet is this year in science. We talked a little bit about space, but we really do want to differentiate between science and space at the moment, because otherwise all I would talk about is space. And there's more to being a science geek than just the heavens. And again, it's been a busy year in science. Uh, advances in uh, vaccine research, advances in urology, advances in climate science, you name it, stuff's been going on. But I think the thing that's really caught my eye from my list of things I didn't talk about on the show, but which I, I really wish I had, is the woolly mammoth they found in Canada. Now, don't get too excited. This was a very dead woolly mammoth. Uh, it had been dead indeed for about about 30,000 years. We're not dealing with a fossil here. This is an animal that has been frozen in permafrost since it died. So for about 30,000 years, it's a female juvenile woolly mammoth. Yes, I called it a juvenile. I'm not, it annoyed me a little bit. This is probably just the linguistics geek in me. But it annoyed me a little bit when most of the reporting that I've seen on this called it a baby woolly mammoth. Well, that's emotive nonsense. It's a juvenile woolly mammoth, as far as I'm concerned. Let's try and remain professional, shall we? And yeah, I know that's a bit rich coming from me, but hey. Now, what it is, is the best preserved woolly mammoth ever found in North America. The tissue of the trunk has been preserved. The toenails have been preserved. The skin and hair of this animal have been preserved. Dr. Dan Sugar, a science professor from the University of Calgary, who was one of the experts who was called to this, um, described it as uh, it's being as close to meeting a living mammoth as one can get. It was incredible to think that it was an animal that died so long ago, but here it is, preserved so well it still has hair on it. Frankly, it was mind-blowing. And, you know, Dr. Sugar, I think, is probably qualified 
to comment that he also thought it was the most exciting science thing he'd ever been a part of. Now, this doesn't mean, before anybody asks, that we can clone mammoths from this carcass. I, we actually probably can. There's a very strong likelihood that there is still DNA present that would be usable for cloning technology. That's not the reason we can't do it. I, there's an ethical issue here. Mammoths are extinct for a reason. And for once, the reason is unlikely to be us. They are creatures of the Ice Age, which is definitely over. So if we brought mammoths back for some reason, first of all, I think the only way you could do that would be to use an elephant as a surrogate, which, again, I would have ethical issues with. What would be the benefit to the animal of that? And let's, but let's say we, we, do, we do that and we have some living, breathing, walking, woolly mammoths wandering around. Okay, so what? Where do we put them? Where is the tundra on which they're going to roam? There isn't any. And what little bit of it there is, is shrinking all the time and has been without mammoths for at least 20,000 years. This is not like the kind of rewilding project where you put wolves back into Yellowstone Park to bring back an ecological balance that humans messed about with when they killed all the wolves in the first place. This would be introducing, effectively, an invasive species into an ecosystem that simply has evolved to not have them in it. So, no, we can't do that. But it's still a very cool thing, because we, we now have an opportunity to learn a huge amount about these massive mammals. That, as a species, we are actually genuinely old enough to have coexisted with. And we can learn, you know, what is their relationship to modern elephants, for instance, you know, what was the function of mammoths in their ecosystem? And perhaps the answer to why they went extinct. Was it overpredation? Was it overhunting by early humans? Or was it something else? I, my money is on something else. I suspect it's climate. But I also like this story because it is a reminder that there is always stuff to find in the ice. We should be aware of because as the climate continues to change there's going to be less and less ice to find stuff in more than that if you can preserve a woolly mammoth in the ice then you can preserve a virus in the ice you can preserve a bacterium in the ice what happens when they thaw out um that might be something we want to take a look at because we've had recent experience with a virus our immune systems were not evolved to deal with and I could do without another one for a bit so that's just a thought to give you nightmares and so we will move on and we will go back to television and to the moment where the 13th doctor finally bade farewell now I am aware that the 13th doctor has been controversial the uneffable rage nerds certainly did not like her. And honestly, people who were not uneffable rage nerds also did not like this incarnation of the Doctor for reasons that are perfectly sensible. I do not think that this particular version of the Doctor was blessed by great writing. There were some astonishingly good episodes. Um, Rosa 
would be one that would immediately spring to mind, as would Demons of the Punjab. As, indeed, would her final episode, The Power of the Doctor. All three of those episodes of Doctor Who, I would put up there amongst the best ever episodes of Doctor Who. But she was also the Doctor for Orphan 66, 59, 73, whatever the number was. I can't be bothered to remember what the number was. And a couple of other episodes, which I would also put firmly amongst the very worst episodes of Doctor Who. So it was up and down at best, I think is what we could say about the writing. The performances, though, I thought were sublime. The the barely restrained, but just about restrained energy that Cody Whittaker brought to the Doctor, I thought was just wonderful. It really worked for me. My only criticism is I would have liked to see her more angry occasionally. I would have liked to have seen her get some of the speeches that the 11th and 12th Doctors got. I wanted her, hello Stonehenge, or her sit down and talk speeches. And she didn't get them. And that, that's for sure. I mean, I know why she didn't get them. She didn't get them because the big speechifying versions of the Doctor were very much a Stephen Moffat thing and very much not a Chris Chibnall thing. So as long as Chibnall was running the show, she was never going to get those speeches. And it turns out she was on the show for exactly the same amount as Chibs. I would have loved to have seen her with a different show. And I really, really would. Hey. What she did get were some fantastic companions. There was always Yaz. I fell in love with the very first time she appeared on screen. It when she's sitting in the car with Ryan and Ryan's grandma, and she just turns around and goes, yeah, we were primary school together. Hello, Ryan's grand. Uh, that was such a Sheffield thing. Um, as you know, I'm from Doncaster, and that's such a Doncaster-Sheffield thing. It was... a a character that made me feel really at home. Obviously, in, initially, there was all, also Ryan and Graham, who I liked, but wasn't sorry to see go particularly, although I thought Bradley Walsh as Graham was particularly great. And when they left, I really was hoping for the Doctor and Yaz to just have the TARDIS to themselves for a bit, because I really liked the relationship between them. And I, I, I don't mean the romantic relationship between them because I'm an old school Doctor Who fan with a preference for there being no hanky-panky in the TARDIS. When I talk about their relationship I really do mean the way they interact, the way their characters vibed off each other. It was so beautifully performed by the two of them. Bandit Gill just owned that character and the infatuation she develops for the Doctor which was always going to be unrequited, was so brilliantly, brilliantly portrayed. I, I just loved that performance. When they immediately introduced the character of Dan, played by John Bishop, I was annoyed. But we'd like Dan too, turns out. She's gone. Regenerated not into Shuti Gatwa, as we were led to believe, but into David Tennant? I can't wait to see because they're clearly 
Russell T Davies, who is taking over as showrunner on Doctor Who, clearly has something up his sleeve here. And given that it's Russell T Davies who brought Doctor Who back in 2005, I'm here to see what it is. I, I, I imagine I'm going to approve. I don't want to talk too much about any of that, because that's for the episode of this show where we look forward to what's coming in 2023. So I just want to really leave Doctor Who here just with an appreciation for the classics who came back. We got the fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth Doctors. And we also got Tegan and Ace, who were every bit as much Tegan and Ace as they always had been. And I have missed Ace so much. She's my favourite ever Doctor Who companion. And it was so nice to see Sophie Eldred back in that jacket with that baseball bat. Yeah, the Chris Chibnall era, the Jodie Whittaker era of Doctor Who ended this year with more of a bang than a whimper, which is nice given how much of Chib's era did kind of whimper along the way. Not entirely his fault. I think the Flux series would have been significantly better had it not been for COVID restrictions. It led to the decision to not have the Doctor and Diaz on screen together very much because they wanted to make sure that if one got COVID, they could keep working with the other one so they wouldn't lose time. All very practical, but narratively limiting, I think you have to admit. So, you know, it, it was not the best of times to be making Doctor Who. I wish things had been otherwise. Hey, them's the breaks. And that is about all we have time for. We will be back next week with... The final part of our look back over 2022 and we'll start to look forward to 2023 and what the new year might bring. Geek Community Notice Board this week. Uh, I understand there's a New Year's party at Major Tom's, which I might get to. Let's be honest, I probably won't. If you have anything you want me to put onto the Geek Community Notice Board, remember info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send it, along with any suggestions you have for things that were highlights for you in the world of geek in 2022, or indeed geeky things you're looking forward to in 2023. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is where to send all of that. But for now, that is pretty much all we have time for. As is traditional, I should tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a production of Venus Rising Media and engineered at a secret location somewhere, somewhere in Harrogate. We'll be back next week with more reflections on the space stories, the science stories, the stuff that was going on in comics, the Marvel TV shows, the movies, all of that good geeky stuff, as well as a look forward into what the new year of 2023 might be bringing us. We've already had a new trailer for Doctor Who, which was quite a nice Christmas present, I thought. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what we're expecting, what may or may not happen with the DC movies under James Gunn, and, you know, all the other stuff that we've got to be excited about. So on the face of it, 2023 looks as though it might be a pretty interesting year in Geek. So, until then, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to everybody else. Have a very happy new year. We'll see you on the other side of the bongs. <laughs>